All right. It is good to be back in the saddle again. Welcome everybody to the 301 class from Metro Praise International Presuppositional Apologetics. We're in week two. I have updated the format here. So for those of you who want to follow along with our notes, you can find them on our website. And I'll put up a link here uh, for the notes that will be on the website. And that's also what I will be using is the notes from the website as I do the lecture. And I just heard from the students that they would actually prefer that I use um, that I use the notes in the lecture. So you'll see a lot of the notes today. And I'm now going to share this as Rachel gets ready to pray. Rachel, would you open us up in prayer, please? Yes, amen. Father God, we want to thank you for this time, um, for the wisdom and the knowledge that you've given us, Lord, through this, uh, this class. We ask for open minds, we ask for understanding, and we ask God that uh, our hearts would be enlightened, oh, Father God, to your truth and how to share that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's get into week two. Uh, this is chapter one in the book. I hope that you all got a lot of goodies out of the reading because I took a lot of time uh, last week to get you guys prepared for the reading. And I think I heard that uh, from a bunch of you that you did get a lot out of the reading uh, because of that. So I hope that everybody's on that same page. If not, it will come up here and you guys will be free to ask any question that you guys may have. Let me go ahead and share my notes now. And uh, Yuli, just give me a heads up if you can see my notes in a readable way, or a thumbs up rather, if you can see my notes as I'm sharing my screen. Okay, you see it? Good. Okay, so chapter one in the book is apologetics, understanding the basics. Some of this is going to be review from last week's introduction. Like I said, I kind of loaded up a heavy intro to the class so that you guys would be ready for the rest of the chapters. And now we're going to go through some of these things that may be a review and uh, just start to clarify them as we go along and then hopefully get into some new nuggies. And our format will be uh, the way I hope it to be every week, which is uh, an hour of lectures, an hour of lecture interjected with uh, questions. I'll stop at different points and ask you guys for questions so you don't have to feel like you can interrupt me. Uh, have to interrupt me, just uh, put a chat that you have a question if you think you're going to forget, or you can put it up on our page, on our group page. But no matter what, I'll do an hour of lectures, stopping uh, periodically for questions, and then the last half hour will be uh, dialogue and also videos to help us understand it more. Okay. Here in our notes, understanding presuppositional apologetics, let's get the definition of apologetics. Apologetics is giving a defense of the Christian faith to unbelievers, and a Christian apologist is someone who does biblical apologetics. Uh, when we look at the Bible, we see, and I'll just read it here for you guys, we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and onward, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, which is the Greek word apologia, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with uh, gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we're going to give an answer, apologia, 
where we get the word apologetics from. And we are Christian apologet apologists because we're the one giving the answer. Now, there are three things, uh, three uh, attributes of apologetics that our book gives us. Apologetics as proof, apologetics as defense, and apologetics as offense. And so this is going to be key when we do apologetics. And these are direct quotes from the book. So number one, apologetics as proof, presenting a rational basis for faith or proving Christianity to be true. Jesus and the apostles often offered evidence to people who had difficulty believing that the gospel was true. See John 14, 11, John 20, 24 through 31 and 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Believers themselves sometimes doubt, and I'm sure you can relate to that. We all can. And at that point, apologetics becomes useful for them, even apart from its role in dialogue with unbelievers. That is to say, apologetics confronts unbelief in the believer as well as in the unbeliever. And so it's important to know that when we talk about presuppositional apologetics, we are not doing away with evidence and proof. What we are just saying is we are going to come first to the presupposition of the unbeliever. And what I personally don't like about the presuppositional movement right now is that it has a lot of sassy people that are fighting against uh, the what we would call the evidentialist or the classic uh, apologetic approach. And so there's those three main that we talked about last week, and we'll get more into the depth and definition of them next week as we learn about the apologists. That's next week. But the, the idea is, is sometimes the presuppositional apologist will put down these uh, people just harshly and, and rudely. And I think, first of all, we as Christians should be kind and charitable, charitable in all things. This is not an essential thing. Even at the end of the class, you may have differing opinions about how you will use presuppositional apologetics. As I've said before, you may use the presuppositional approach as one of your many arguments in a classic, maybe evidential approach, or you will stay from, you'll, you'll have a st starting point of presuppositional apologetics and then use all of the other uh, arguments as a part of it. So let me just say this right here. The main difference between classic and evidential is the classical apologist. And there's a four views book, by the way, on these different approaches that I have that if you ask me for the link, I can give it to you. Uh, so they, they kind of go back and forth and tell you their, their opinions. But the classic says we're going to start with a generic God, give evidence for that first and then move into other evidences where the evidentialist is going to start just right with evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. The, uh, the Bible says that the earth was created in six literal days. Science says this, you know, approves this. Um, now, if you take those two approaches and kind of combine them together as being non-presuppositional, so classic and evidential are non-presuppositional, and then on this side you have presuppositional, the main difference between those two is that the presuppositional is going to say, before I address the arguments for God, like the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. The cosmological argument is the argument from first cause. Teleological, teleological argument, the argument from design, the moral argument, etc. What the presuppositionalist is saying is I want to address 
how do we even understand arguments? Why, do, why is there a such thing as logic, okay? And the same thing with the evidentialist. He's going to come bringing proof of the resurrection, proof of a six-day creation, proof of these different things. And once again, the presuppositionalist is going to say, before I give somebody evidence, before I try to just go right in the proof, I want to address their presuppositions. But now... As the conversation goes on, and Daryl brought this out, and this may be a good part to address it, even in our book on page four, uh, Dr. Frame says, at some point, you do need to move on from the presuppositional uh, uh, argument to keep arguing it with them, because then that's all you'll argue the entire time. Now, there are some presuppositionalists, and by the way, there's different kinds of presuppositionalists, and they argue with each other of how to do this approach. And there are certain kinds of presuppositionalists that will just keep talking to them over and over and over again. Well, how do you know? Well, how do you know? To me, I, I'm a presuppositionalist. So I first, before I give evidence and before I talk about God's uh, proof for, you know, the things of the these different arguments, before I give proof or argument, I'm going to take on the presuppos take on their presuppositions. After I've done that to a point where I think I have laid the foundation then I will move on to different evidences and different proofs. But at any time they go back to being sassy or they're not seeming to understand it, I'm going to go right back and say, well, this is why you're not getting my evidence. This is why you're not getting my proof is because you have faulty foundations. So when you use apologetics as a proof, especially as a presuppositionalist, you can either A, stay on the presuppositional argument for the entire time, or you can establish it and then move on to other things. That's how uh, I see it, and I think it's okay to move on to other things, and that's why apologetics is going to offer proof. Uh, number two, apologetics is, is a defense. Answering the objections of unbelief. Paul describes his mission as defending and confirming the gospel in, in uh, Philippians 1.7 and also in verse 16. Confirming may refer to number one above, which we were talking about giving proof, like confirming the proof. Uh, we say Jesus raised from the dead. They say, no, he did it. And we defend that he did. Right. So the proof is saying we got proof for why the Bible is the Bible, because remember, that's our presupposition is God is God is real. And the word is his. The Bible is his word. So they start attacking those things. We've given them our apologetics as proof. We've spoken the word to them. We've told them this is the only thing that makes sense out of the world. There's a God and you've spoken through scripture. And then they start attacking that. Now we defend it. And then you'll see next we go on the offense. Okay, so Paul was saying, I'm defending and confirming the gospel. Much of Paul's writing in the New Testament is apologetic in this sense. Think of how many times he's responding to the imaginary or real objectors in his letter, like to the Romans, for example. And think of how often Jesus deals with the objection of religious leaders in the gospel of John. So let's just take these two approaches real quick, proof and defense. Jesus already knows who he is. He, he has the right presupposition, right? Like I have come from God. I'm the son of God. Like that's who he knows he is. He preaches about who he knows he is. He doesn't come to the argument presupposing something else. He comes with his own presupposition. And then when people attack it, he stands on it and defends it. And then what does he do? Lastly, he now goes on the offense 
and starts bringing the attack to them, tearing down their arguments, tearing down their worldviews, tearing down their position. So apologetics is offense. It's not only proof and defense, it's also offense. Attacking the foolishness of unbelieving thoughts. Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, uh, 16. And let me just read that for you as well. I have that scripture prepared. Uh, here we go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, listen to this word here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So he will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So there you can uh, clearly see that God is going to destroy some stuff. It's not just going to be uh, you know, like, hey, you have your view, I have my view. He is going to bring it on down, okay? So destroying is not a person-to-person -person fight. Destroying is the argument-to-argument -argument fight. So we're destroying arguments, and that's what it goes on to say in, uh, uh, where's the reference here? Second Corinthians 10.5, and let me just read that real quick. So we don't start thinking this is a jihad. The destruction is of arguments. Second Corinthians 10.5. It says, uh, well, verse four, rather, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And so you can also put that in with Ephesians six. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but of principalities, powers and, and, and the the, the places of, of wickedness and high places. So let us remember that. So God is not calling us to only uh, answer objections and to be on the defense, but we're called to destroy the arguments and the beliefs of non-believers. And you got to remember, non-believers are not just atheists and agnostics. These are also all the other world religions. So according to the Bible, there's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. So any other... Uh, argument needs to be brought down. Islam, Hinduism, Eastern thought, Buddhism, animism, uh, even Judaism that attacks Jesus as the Messiah, tearing that down. Even uh, cults and, and religious groups like Roman Catholicism against the knowledge of God, like Roman Catholics teaching a perpetual suffering Jesus. And when you uh, come and take the communion. He's always being re-crucified over and over again. That's why he's always on the cross. And Protestants have Jesus off the cross, uh, recognizing his resurrection. Okay, so those are the three components of apologetics. Apologetics as proof, as defense, and as offense. Now, remember, we're learning presuppositional apologetics. So I'm talking about apologetics, presuppositions, and then I'm going to go to presuppositional apologetics. Just taking our time, okay? We're not in a hurry. Presuppositions now are the beliefs that people suppose beforehand to use as an antecedent, a precondition in logic or fact, okay? So that's what pre pre presuppositions are, and everyone has them. Here's from the book. We hold it to be true that circular reasoning is the only reasoning that is possible for finite man when it comes to the first truth or ultimate foundation. So when we are debating things when it comes to God and we're doing apologetics, we have to expose people's presuppositions because everybody has them. And if they say to us, our presupposition is circular, 
It's begging the question because we say God exists, therefore God exists. We have to say to them, yes, but everyone has circular arguments. You say reason is true because reason exists. You believe science is true because science exists. And so, for example, the scientist argues in a circle when they try to use science to prove science or when a philosopher tries to use reason to prove reason. The non-Christian, especially the non-theist, has a faulty foundation because how can they know what they know about science and reason is true? So the non-theist has the worst problem with their presupposition because they deny even a God. So after that point, it literally turns into folly and absurdity. We'll get to that in a moment. But also every non-Christian worldview falls into absurdity because why, uh, how can you test what Muhammad said? And a lot of these religions like Islam will say, test it by this, test it by that. But hold on. If there are contradictions in your book and contradictions then to my book, now we start to have a problem. Yours is contradicting itself, and then it contradicts what we have. Ours doesn't contradict itself, and therefore it must be the truth to your error. Now, can we take time and study their religions to always find their inner contradictions? Yes, we should. Uh, if we are interested in reaching Muslims, we should study their religion and find the intrinsic contradictions within their own religion, seeing that it's a product of man, not of God. And then we expose it with the truth of the scripture, which has no contradiction, which is truth. Now, once again, we are Christians. Why? Because we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the moment the Book of Mormon comes into my hands, I'm going to filter it through the Bible, and I'm going to know instantly it's not the truth. But how am I going to expose that to them? I'm going to expose that to them by showing internally their book is not sound and that it contradicts the Bible. Now, what if somebody wrote a short book and just said, I am God? Well, there's no contradiction in the book itself, but now it contradicts our book and who God is. But thankfully, most of these revelations from the Baha'i faith, Islam, Mormonism have lies within their own context because it comes from the father of lies and all truth can only come from God, so forth and so on. And so you can use this tactic to help bring down the non-Christian worldview, but in another religion. But let's keep going. Therefore, circularity or foundational presuppositions are justified only at one point. So we're saying, yes, everybody has to start at one circular argument, one thing that is because it is, okay? But it can only be a good circular argument, a justified circular argument, if it gives ultimate criterion for all knowledge, if it becomes the true axiom or foundation for all knowledge, and that then it's necessary as a precondition for everything else, and if you don't have it, everything else becomes absurd. And so if you don't have God, you can't have logic. Everything else becomes absurd. If you don't have Jesus, the son of God, Islam is absurd. Hinduism is absurd. Uh, if you don't have the sacrificial uh, fulfillment in Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world revealed unto men at the certain time in history, God's uh, wrath was placed upon him. All ways of salvation are absurd outside of him. Okay. 
Now, let me just give you an example, focusing more on the non-theists who believe in absurdities to try to get around believing in God as their ultimate foundation. It is absurd to believe nothing can produce something. So this is what it will come down to with the non-theists, is that we say God is our ultimate foundation. He is the circular presupposition that we have. God is true because God is true, you know, something like that. Um, and that's what we're going to say. Now, they then have to say reason is true because reason is true. But then we ask them, where did reason come from? Now they tell us the story of human evolution. Then they tell us the Big Bang. And now we go to a foundation before the Big Bang. They will then be reduced to absurdity to say nothing created everything. Now, what would you rather believe? Nothing created everything or something created everything. You understand, at this point, it almost becomes I mean, it is obvious, but it almost becomes like rationalizing with a fool, as the Bible says, if they can't see that. And now we go to Romans 1.18 that says they're suppressing God. They're actually aware of God because they have a mind. They see creation. They understand intelligence. They understand Mount, Rush, Mount Rushmore wasn't made through wind and rain. It was designed. And so, therefore, they are suppressing the, the knowledge of God, as Romans 18, 118 says. It's also absurd to believe in an infinite regress. So if they keep saying there was a universe that created our universe that created our universe, okay, well, then that would go on for infinity unless there is an ultimate creator of universes. Well, now think about this. Could you ever reach the present moment if you had to traverse an infinite amount of time? No, you would be back someday, somewhere back in infinity right now because you could never go forward to the present if you always had to cross an infinity to get to the present. Now, sometimes people will say a short distance, like an inch, can be cut, 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 cut down for an infinite amount of times. I have to, 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 to an infinite. Just like someone was describing that uh, in the movie Ant-Man, where they shrink him, that if something went wrong in the shrinking, it would keep cutting him in half and half and half and half and half and half. Well, they'll say, we cross infinities all the time, because when I cross an inch, I've crossed uh, an infinity. But here's the difference. The inch and the, multi uh, the dividing over and over again is a possible infinity. So if you did become the Ant-Man and got cut in half, cut in half, that would go on forever and ever and ever. But the reason why you can cross the actual inch is because the actual inch isn't an infinite of anything. It just has the potential of an infinite. Okay, so that's an absurdity. Another absurdity is it's absurd to believe that your mind and free will are an illusion because everything you would do and think would then be an illusion, meaningless. Now, right about here, when we're understanding presuppositions, people in the church, in the world, they begin to honestly question whether really people believe this. That, Like I've had, even in, in the church, when I've taught people this, they're like, they're, people don't believe nothing created everything. Oh, yes, they do. They wrote a book. One of the most popular physicists of our time Lawrence Krauss wrote a book, Creation Out of Nothing. You know, he, he has the whole book on it. And then he gets rocked by other physicists that say, uh, Lawrence, you've just changed the definition of nothing. He calls nothing now certain particles, you know, but it's not a no thing, a non-existent thing, right? Um, and then this idea that people will 
have absurd thoughts that they don't exist, but even as someone existing, they'll try to say they don't exist. No, that's actually what they do. Some of the smartest people in neurology, like Sam Harris, don't even believe he exists as a person. He is an animal of instinct. Now, to show you this, I have quotes from the book, The Atheist Guide to, Re to Reality, by Dr. Alex Rosenberg, a head philosopher at Duke. Now, I got to know of him when he debated William Lane Craig. And this is in his book. And this is a philosopher at Duke. He has won awards. He is a beast in his, uh, in his field. Listen to how he answers these questions. Is there a God? No. What? Now, now notice this. Once we go to God not being there, notice how he has to give up everything else now. So what is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. There it is. I mean, this is out of their own mouth. Now, hold on. They even asked him this in the debate. Alex Rosenberg, if there's no purpose of the universe, then why did you write a book about purpose? What are you doing? Now, this is their argument. Their argument is there's no grand purpose, but there are small little purposes that we can make for ourselves. My friends, that's like literally saying there's nothing that exists that's 10 foot by 10 foot, but there's nothing that exists one inch by one inch. My friends, this is a walking contradiction. It is literally saying I have a purpose and a purposeless universe. It is saying that there's a such thing as a married bachelor's. This is the suppression. Let me just read the scripture. This is the oppression of the truth that Romans talks about. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, do you think Alex Rosenberg really believes that this makes sense? No, he is out of his mind, rationally speaking, because he is self-deceived. He is no different than the man who straps a bomb on himself out of his religiosity and deception and thinks if he blows himself up, he's got virgins waiting for him in a place called paradise. These people are as religiously indoctrinated by wishful thinking as any false religion out there. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Now, do you believe the scripture? You should because it exposes him. Because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. My friend, you're without excuse for answering this. Now, answering this way. Let's keep going. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. So that means it's the same answer. There is no meaning to life. Does your book have meaning? Well, if your book has meaning, there's a meaning. There's a meaning in life. First, your book. There's a person writing the book. You have, come on. Now watch this. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. And we're the ones who have blind faith? Whoop, there it is. Whoop, there it is. Come on, somebody. We all have faith. Only the Christian is rational faith. This is fideism. This is just blind faith. Why am I here? Just dumb luck.
And luck is another pagan word, right? So you, you can't even get this guy to be consistent in his own worldview. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Now watch this. Is there free will? Can you choose between A and non-A? Not a chance. Alex, could you have written the book or not? Alex, did you choose your shoes today? Now, this is the world they live in, and I've heard them try to explain it, but I want to tell you, it sounds no different. When smart people say dumb things, it's still dumb, okay? It sounds no different than the videos that I've played for you already. It is dumb. I live in the world of I don't know. That's the only thing I know is I don't know. Well, do you know that you don't know? <laughs> Come on. There is no absolute truth. Do you believe that absolutely? Nobody knows the right and wrong. Nobody knows what's going on. How do you know? Question everything. I'll question that. Why should I question everything? You know, it just, when you deny God, you're a fool. Not a fool in the sense of you can't do math or you're not able to do God-given talents because we believe that even fools can have God-given talents. But you're a fool because you're contradicting yourself, acting like it doesn't matter. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on just as before, but without us. Now watch this. Come on, watch this. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? He's denied God. He's denied purpose. He's denied really having a free will and existence that, that makes him a person. Now he's just an animal of instinct. So guess what? Is there a right or wrong? No. There is no moral difference between them. Did you hear that? You see, presuppositions matter, don't they? Because all of a sudden, this guy gets in charge and there's no moral difference between right and wrong. Heard of Auschwitz? Heard of the gulags of Russia? Stalin killing 20 to 30 million of his people? Is it any coincidence that once nations dispose of God, emperors try to become God? And the most egregious things of history happen? Hello, somebody. They've taken up all of the stats of all of the world wars and all of the times that people have fought, and they broke it down. Religious causes, non-religious causes. Religious causes, few hundred thousand, maybe a couple million. Non-religious causes, hundreds of millions. Just in the last hundred years when we were supposed to have utopia. Russia was supposed to be a utopia, killed 20 or 30. China was supposed to be a utopia, killed 40 or 50 million. Come on. And this is what they believed. They believed in no God. You only had the one world to live in. And this is what they indoctrinated people. This is why when you read um, Tortured for Christ by uh, Richard Warnbrandt, you'd hear about their indoctrination. And they loved to torture people because they hated God. They hated Christians. And that's what the communists were doing. That's what they're doing in North Korea even now. Uh, why should I be no moral? Because it makes me feel better than being immoral. Well, what if being immoral makes you feel better? Well, according to his logic, do it. If everybody says it's okay to kill and it makes you feel better, why not? If everybody says, you know, might is right, the majority leads, uh, feels better not to have Jews around here take their property, okay. Feels better to rape slaves, okay. Hello, do, do you understand why in the South, as we have minorities in this class, do you understand why in the South the form of Christianity they practiced was a cult? They were no more Christians 
than Muslims were Christians enslaving people? Because how can a man morally under God's commands uh, and the God's ethic get uh, God's ethical system rape a slave? You can't. The only way you could do that is if you adopted as a Christian some kind of evolutionary mindset where you convinced yourself that morals really don't apply to these people. Well, that's not what the Bible says. We're all created from the human race, one race, uh, in the image of God. Now watch this. It gets even more personal. This guy ain't afraid. He is not afraid to tell you the truth. As a matter of fact, in his book, the whole point is he's talking to atheists. He don't even care about us. We're meaningless to him in this book. The whole thing Dr. Rosenberg is saying to these guys is stop pretending you're a Christian by using their worldview. Stop pretending it matters. It doesn't. He even recognizes that many atheists borrow Christian worldviews. So he wants atheists to be real atheists. That's what he's preaching here. And he's not fringe, by the way. He's part of the forefront of the new atheism of our day. Is abortion, killing children in the womb, euthanasia, killing young people, suicide, taking your own life, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Uh, Is it obligatory that I don't rape children? Well, let's see what he says. Anything goes. It's not forbidden to rape children. It just probably won't be the best thing for you in this society. You'll get arrested and that won't feel good. But it's it's, it's not forbidden. That's what he says. That's what he says. That's what the fool says. That's what it looks like when you see that worldview come to its conclusions. So do you understand why we need to attack presuppositions? And we need to help people who think this way understand what they're really saying. This is what you have to reduce your worldview down to. Now, let me say this. We love the sinner. That's why we want to expose their folly, right? We love them. We want to preach the gospel to them. We were all like them. Maybe we weren't as forward in thinking about our sinfulness, but we were God haters. We were dead in sin. We made excuses, you know. We, we maybe didn't think child molestation was right, but we made excuses for our lust, our anger, our desires to murder, to steal. And so what changed our hearts? What changed our minds? Jesus did. We were born again. When the word came, we believed it. We humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he renewed our, uh, he gave us a new mind. And now he renews it daily by his word. And if we ever stop reading his word, ever stop walking with the spirit, These things could become a reality in our life again. I believe in backsliding. So now let's come to the conclusion of really the only valid presupposition we have, lest we go the way of Dr. Alex Rosenberg. And I'm sure nobody here wants to go that way. Premise one, whatever God says is true. (laughs) That's what we're pretty much left with, right? I mean, there's uh, that or absurdity. Premise two. God said in the Bible, he is truth. Okay, therefore, it's true, God is truth. That's my foundation. Do you understand why I said to you guys last week, on the solid rock I stand, everything else is sinking sand? There is no other place to go, my friends. There is no other place to go. And all, let me just say this, capital A-L-L, all apologists, whether they're classical, evidentialist, presuppositional, we all agree on that. The world is absurd without God. But the only difference is, is how do we argue it? Just putting it again to the presuppositions. Uh, The presuppositionalist is going to spend more time there 
Get them to acknowledge their contradiction and then give them the proof and the evidence and preach the word to them and help answer their questions and attack theirs, right? Proof, defense, offense. We're going to do that as we're rocking their foundations and praying that God will do what only he can do. As we're speaking the word, being faithful to speak his word, it's his word that will convict of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And it is of his spirit that will do, uh, do those things through the word, rather. And it's the spirit that gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. Give me just a, a few moments to conclude this, then I'll stop and see if there's any questions before we go on with the lecture. Everyone has presuppositions, but only the Christians are justified. When we adopt the word of God as our ultimate commitment, our ultimate standard, our ultimate criterion of truth and falsity, God's word then becomes our presupposition. That is to say, since we use it to evaluate all other beliefs, we must regard it as more certain than any other beliefs. Any questions that you may have about what we just covered, the basics of apologetics and the basics of presuppositions. Feel free to unmute yourself. How would a Christian um, defend on the reality of the Bible being a source of truth? Using yeah. the argument of presupposition. Presupposition. Yeah, we're going to get into that, but not much different than the evidentialist or the uh, the classical person. See, this is where I think we got a little bit, not confused last week, but where I had to spend a little bit more time, and I wanted to hit on that today, so I'm glad you brought that up, is the presuppositionalist is going to share the same evidences that the, the other apologists are going to use. We're, we're going to defend the Bible, we're going to show the manuscripts. We're going to show the prophecies. We're going to go to historical witness. We're going to give evidence for the resurrection. We're going to do all of that. But remember, we're doing that from the presupposition that it's true. Hold on to this if you have more questions about it, because I want you to watch Jason Lyle's video. It's Once again, we're not denying that we're going to give them other stuff to think about from the Bible. What we're just saying is, Dude, if you just said these kinds of things, that's straight up folly. You know better than that because you can't make sense of even what you're saying. You know, that's what we're saying to them. That's what presuppositional apologetics is doing as a foundation. It's not saying we don't have proof. It's not saying, look, we don't have evidence as I'm putting things in my hand, like, like, uh, like Wolverine. It's just saying what holds it. The ho what holds it is the presupposition God exists and his word is true. And, and that's how you became a Christian, right? You became a Christian, Juan, because you had an encounter with God and you knew he was real and his word was true. And then afterward, did you not start to study and get more evidence and more proof? Because most people I meet do not come to the faith based on arguments or long times of studying. Most people, and even then, like Elise Strobel and others who do study first, they still say there was a point where there's a divine encounter, something that they couldn't, you know, put in a laboratory and test. It's something that they know intrinsically in their heart happened. Juan, would you be able to relate to a testimony like that? Yeah, um, I felt the spirit of God and 
that moment I just felt the commission of God and that's what led me to to repent and then after that I was trying to figure things out but I realized faith came first and then my understanding came after that like St. Augustine said Amen. Yeah. And, and, and that's all we're saying here. We're, we're saying that just like once again, with, with reason and our existence, we're all experiencing it. And we can only know that we're experiencing it if we have experienced it. Like, how would I know I wasn't existing? I can only know that I am existing because I exist. I can only know reason is true because I am reasoning. The one that's in a, a coma right now, not reasoning, doesn't know they're not reasoning, right? So the one then who wants to say, I can reason and try to disprove reasoning or uh, logic with my reasoning is absurd. The one who's existing and can say, I really don't exist. Or the one that's making free will choices and says, I don't really have a free will. That's the one that we're really wanting to hit on. Let me keep going, guys. If you have more questions. Wait till I keep going because uh, I want to really get through the lecture. And I think a lot of these things will get cleared up as, as we continue. So thank you for your patience. Write them down so you do not forget. Okay, so now let's go to the myth of neutrality. And that's really what I want to hit on is the myth of neutrality is that, that if you tell the unbeliever that we can reason with him on a neutral basis, however that claim might help, However, that claim might seem to help attract his attention. It's a lie. We're not coming on a neutral basis. Indeed, it's a lie of the most serious kind, for it falsifies the very heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I just want everybody to understand this. Even like a Lee Strobel or a Josh McDowell or different people who have come to the Lord after studying evidence, did they do that with the presupposition of the fool. No. Even if they came to faith through studying, they did it as a seeker. And as C.S. Lewis even describes, they had to come to a place where they humbled themselves to God and his word to admit that this makes sense and what I'm saying doesn't make sense. And so that's what we want to help the unbeliever understand is we're not coming on equal ground. You make no sense over here. The Christian is the only one that makes sense. And let me just say it again, because this falsifies the very heart of the gospel, as it says in this thing here. If we talk to a non-believer and try to negotiate with them a neutral ground where we don't have to acknowledge us as Christians that Jesus is the logos, the source of all logic, and now we start arguing logically, have we not just shown to them that we don't really believe what we're saying we believe? We may go into logical arguments, yes. But first, don't you think it's good to tell them where logic came from? The Logos, right? So there is no neutrality. Our witness is either God's wisdom or the world's, world's foolishness. It's either Jesus or Alex Rosenberg or Nietzsche you know, was another famous atheist that told it as it was and really brought atheism to nihilism, to nihilism, which just basically says there's no point and purpose to anything. And even Alex Rosenberg loves that. And he says, if you don't like it, take, take more Prozac. That's his answer to those who don't like. He says, just drug yourself up and get through life because that's all you got, you miserable thing, you know. 
A good thing, like we said before, that's not true. Praise God. Our witness, and is it any coincidence that we have all of the problems in our culture as this worldview is growing? I mean, just think about the rate of suicide compared to maybe in the 1800s when people lived on farms or the rate of drug addictions. You know, I mean, you could have found these drugs in those times, but why, what, why is the rate of these things so astronomically high? It's because there's hopelessness. You tell people in college they've come from nothing. You contradict their logic and their sense. You then say that anything goes as long as it's, it's, it's in government, it's okay. Get away with as much as you can. You tell them that they don't even have a free will. They're a creature of instinct. I mean, that's literally what the universities are telling them. I mean, what do you think that's going to do to your heart and mind? And even when Christians battle with doubt and fear, don't they a lot of times have these things in their heart? There's no God and this and that. Well, I mean, all you have to do is like do apologetics with yourself. How did I get here? How am I even in this body right now? I'm not an animal. I'm obviously not this animal. Like Descartes did. Descartes doubted everything, doubted everything. And he said, the one thing I can't doubt is that I exist. I think, therefore, I am. There's something going on here that's unique. So our witness is either God's wisdom or the world's foolishness. There's nothing in between. Even in neutrality, even if neutrality were possible, that route would be forbidden for us. Unbelievers are rebellious. They're not neutral. The point is that that um, the point is not that unbelievers are simply ignorant of the truth. Rather, God has revealed Himself to each person unmistakably clear, both in creation and and in God's own nature, like through their conscience. But the unbeliever knows God and is rejecting God. Thus, the non-Christian is deceived and led astray. He knows God and does not know God at the same time. How is that true? It's because he is rejecting and purposely telling himself the lie over and over and over again. There is no God to try to convince himself that there is no God. And so we would not know about the unbeliever's condition apart from Scripture. So let's not say I believe everything about Scripture except what it tells me about the unbeliever. No, I'm going to believe the, unbelie- I'm going to believe the Bible over the unbeliever. And so we should address them as the Bible tells us to. And so don't give up your ground. Stand on the rock of God's word. An apologetic argument, as in everything else we do, we must presuppose the truth of God's word. Did Jesus ever say, well, Satan, I don't know if I exist. Let me argue with you. He said, it is written. It is written. It is written. How do we come against the lies of the devil, whether they're coming through people or satanic spirits themselves? It is written. It is written. It is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. And so it doesn't matter that sometimes we find ourselves conversing with non-Christians, okay? Then too, perhaps, especially then, for then we are bearing witness, we must be faithful to our Lord's revelation. So we don't stop believing what we believe just because we're talking to a non-Christian. Now let's put it together. We've talked about apologetics. We've talked about presuppositions. We've talked about the myth of neutrality. Now let's go to presuppositional apologetics. The discipline of defending and presenting the Christian faith to unbelievers with the presuppositions that God exists and is revealed in the Bible. Boom, shakalaka. Here are the scriptural basis for that. Acts 17, 23 through 31, Paul at the Aragopibus era, uh, the Mars Hill rather to say it that way. Uh, he says, this is this unknown God. I know who he is. And he proclaims him, uh, proclaims Jesus boldly to them. We've already read Romans 1, 18, and it goes all the way on to 32. We've also read 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, Jude 1, 3. Let me just give that to you right now, Jude 1, 3. 
Um, this, this is the scripture that says that we need to, um, what does it say? Jude 1, 3. Give me a second. It says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we fear, I felt uh, we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted for all to God's holy people, that was once for all trusted to God's holy people. Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 3, only one chapter in Jude. Contend for the faith. Okay, now the basic understanding of the Christian's presuppositions. Okay, here it is. Here, what's our basic understanding? Just another way of saying it as we've been going through it. God's rationality is the basis for human faith, and human faith in God and his word is the basis for human reasoning. Okay, God is a person. He has a mind, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have a mind, a will, emotion. That's why we have mind, will, and emotion. God is logical. He cannot lie. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the Son, is the Logos, the divine logic of God. Therefore, when man reasons, though he doesn't see reasoning, he's doing it based on there being a God. When man does science, he's doing it based on there being a God who created everything out of his uniformity with laws and uh, he, God created the universe with laws governing the universe to show forth his order and design. And that's why we can do reasoning. So we can't see those things per se. We can't see gravity. We can't see uh, logic. We can't see the law of non-contradiction. We, we have faith, but we know God is the only rational and the only logical possibility that those things could even exist. Why does logic exist? Because God exists. So we have faith, but it's a rational faith. Now, C.S. Lewis has a long argument that explains this. You can look at it there. I've cited it for you. Here's a simple way of saying it. Premise one, reason is valid if it can be proven true without man's reason. So remember this. If we keep proving our reason with reason, if your reasoning was broken, how would you ever know? Because you're doing everything through reason. So think of it like this. If you put on glasses, I uh, gave me glasses, like those 3D glasses that maybe change colors. So let's just say uh, everything I see that is red actually is blue because I have a certain lens on, right? So every time I see something red, it looks blue to me, Okay. I would be wrong every single time you asked me what color something was, you know, that was red. I would be wrong every single time. And I would be so adamant that I was right because to me it is the color I'm seeing. But that's because I have a broken vision or a, a incorrect lens that has changed everything. So we need an outside source to validate everything, right? Premise number two, God is the only option to validate man's reason. Now stop right here. Is that not what the atheist even says? Yes, because if there is no God, then there is no meaning to life. There is no reason that reason works. Isn't that what Albert Einstein says? Isn't that what the rest of them? So this is not even our opinion. This is everybody's opinion. So reason is either valid because it can be proven by an outside source, and God is the only one able to do it, or there is no such thing as reason, 
But now watch the conclusion. Therefore, either God exists and reason is valid, or God doesn't exist and reasoning is invalid, and thus you can't understand this argument. Can you understand the argument? Well, reasoning is valid. Therefore, God exists. It is that simple. God exists. I reason, therefore, it's not only I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore, God. The greatest proof of God is the person arguing with you. The fact that you're arguing, every word out of your mouth is a proof of God. The scientists, everything they do in science is the proof of God. Okay, Here's Dr. William Lane Craig's uh, uh, argument from the absurdity of life without God. Okay, To reject God and his word is to reduce everything, including reason, to absurdity. And I got the link for um, William Lane Craig has a video that he talks about this. And maybe I'll play a little bit of it here. Premise one, if God exists, life has meaning. Premise two, life has meaning. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. Now, how would you disprove this argument? Now, watch. It's very simple to try to disprove, but look what you have to give up in disproving it. Okay? Now, watch. If, to say the opposite, if God does not exist, life has no meaning. Life has no meaning, therefore, God does not exist. But did the sentence have meaning? Therefore, God exists. Now, I know that we have to watch some videos now to show you how to apply this, but I hope you're getting the understanding here. This is how we answer the fool. This is how we speak to those in love. Remember when I say answer the fool, I don't mean talk to them like they're a fool, like you know, mistreat them, call them names, etc., But this is how we answer the person who says there is no God or I don't believe in the Jesus of your Bible, et cetera, et cetera. This is how we answer these people. We show them the word of God. We show them the God of the Bible, and we show them that they understand these things, that they understand it, that they couldn't do anything except buy these things. Now, real quick before we get into our discussion, because I got about six minutes left here, and then we'll have 30 minutes of discussion and videos. The world religions, other like all other belief systems outside of atheism and agnosticism, they may not need all of these arguments because they may agree with us. They may use a lot of them themselves. As a matter of fact, oftentimes the Muslims especially steal from our arguments and, and, and use them. And, uh, and to give them credit, we do have one, the Kalam, as you can hear it in the name, it sounds Arabic, Kalam. The Kalam cosmological argument actually came during the time of, uh, of the Muslim, uh, from a Muslim thinker. But what we do then is we go to the book and the man, the book and the man, our book, the Bible, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then we line it up against every book and every man that goes against our book and our man because we presuppose our book and our man is right. And then one other thing I would like to say, if somebody says, well, it sounds like you guys are really just close-minded. And I was just talking, by the way, to Jehovah Witnesses all uh, the other day, and they were just so super-duper close-minded. And so the idea maybe you guys are just like a call. No, no, no. Here's the deal. All Christians pursue truth because we believe God is truth. We have no problem changing opinions on things as long as we're pursuing truth. What we know is impossible, though, 
is for you to come up with another explanation other than God being truth. So that's where we have to come together with them and say, no, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there's something that I've thought about creation that's wrong. Maybe uh, this is wrong. Maybe there's an evidence I've been using that that's not true. You know, I, they thought I was going around like an urban myth. They found a missing day in the astronomical, astronomical records, astronomy, uh, and because, you know, Joshua had that miracle with the sun stood still. And, you know, that was a bad argument or, you know, these different things. Yes, we're willing to do that. And even if, let's just say, well, would you be willing? Let's say they asked us, well, what if Christianity was wrong? Then I would say the only way that could possibly be true is if you explain and have the same explanatory scope that Christianity has to give us foundations and for the person of Jesus. Because you would have to have some type of a religion that doesn't intercounter that doesn't have inner contradictions and conflict that explains all the universe in the way it is. And then now, because Jesus is the greatest uh, revelation of the Father, you have to deal with Jesus in a certain way that would uh, prove the scriptures to be wrong or the ar- archaeological evidence or the testimony of our faith. And I'm not afraid of people trying that because I have seen the scriptures proven true over and over and over again, my personal testimony. And so even though I do say to the Mormon, hey, I'm willing to follow your prophet and book if it's true, I know that their prophet and book cannot stand under the scrutiny of our, prof- of our Jesus, the way Jesus is taught in the Bible and, uh, and uh, the Bible itself. So we have no fear of truth. Let's put it that way. All right, let's get to your questions. We have a few minutes now, and the next half hour, we'll get into videos and discussions. Talk to me. Um, I have a, a question uh, kind of from before, so I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, speaking in a formality, I guess, fashion, would it be okay in presuppositional apologetics to use uh, the apologetics as proof, as defense, and as offense in one conversation? Is that is that correct? Because I, I, I think that's what I'm hearing. Oh, yeah. And in this chapter, did you see that it had a discussion? Like he actually has an example of how to talk to an unbeliever? Yeah, I saw, I saw that. And then I saw him yeah. use uh, number one can be used as number two, and then two and three, and then one and two. And I saw that. Um, I was just asking that uh, just in conversation because we're going through it. I yeah. just want to make sure uh, that I was understanding that correctly. Yeah. And let me just give an example. Okay. Um, is that the question? Because I, I think I got it. Go ahead. Okay, cool. So let's say, thank you for asking. That's really good. So um, let me do my best of giving an example. So let's say we have um, Daryl and I, we're out uh, getting groceries. Uh, you, you've come over to my house before and we had to go to the, the grocery store and make a run, right? So we're there. Uh, somebody stops me because they see I have a T-shirt on and they say, Oh, man, you know, you Christians, you guys always put down the cross like that. You know, why do you guys do that? That's so silly. You know, I don't I don't believe that. So I'm going to say to this guy, I'm going to be like, well, 
you know, what do you believe? And he's going to say, well, I just believe when you die, you die. There's no God or anything. So I'm going to say to him, I'm going to say, uh, so anything goes? And he'll go, yeah, whatever. And I'll go, so uh, somebody can molest children and do whatever. Now, the moment he says that, uh, one moment I say that, he's going to have now have to make a decision. How far is he going to go in this nonsense? So let's say he goes, no, no, you shouldn't do that. I'm going to say, well, why shouldn't you do that? Well, because I would hurt the child. Well, why shouldn't you hurt the child? So I'm going to keep backing him up with these kind of questions. And let's just say he gets to a point, he goes, well, I just think you should do whatever uh, doesn't hurt people. And I'm going to say, well, where did you get that from? You should do whatever that doesn't hurt people. So as you can see through the what they call the uh, uh, the name just slipped my mind, the the idea of asking questions, which is why our show is named What Do You Believe? What is that method called? And it just slipped my mind. The, um, of course, it always has to happen. The question, the art of asking questions. So, what's that? Socratic. Thank you. Socratic method. Thank you. I don't know why of all things just to slip my mind. So I'm just going to keep doing that. Very similar to what Jesus did. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Where did you get this from? Where did you get that from? Now, at some point, he's going to, if he's an average person, he's going to get to the point of contradiction. And then now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start giving him proof. Boom. I'm going to start saying, well, let me tell you why you have a problem with child molesting. Let me tell you why you have a problem with evil in this world. The Bible says that he made you in his image. You see what I'm saying? I'm giving him now proof. You're made in the image of God. You have a moral conscience. Uh, as I was out preaching one time with uh, Yuli and these guys at uh, Wright College, I said, as you're tapping your foot up and down, who does that? You or you an animal? Does, does your body make you tap your foot or are you tapping your foot? You know, he goes, I do. And I go, well, that's because you have choice in this world, don't you? You're not an animal. You know why you're not an animal like they teach you in there? It's because God made. So boom, I'm, I'm giving him proof. And at the same time, what am I doing? I'm on the offense, striking down the, uh, the lies that he's been believing in the same sentences, you know? And then what am I putting on top of that? You need to be born again. You only have one lot. Now, boom, straight gospel presentation. You need to be born again. The Bible says you're a sinner. The Bible says you know right and wrong. In your conscience, you know there's a creator. You know that you're not an animal. You're going to be held accountable for all these sins. And then if he says, well, I'm a good person, and you'll see him do it. They'll switch from being an atheist to, well, if there's a God, I, I, I'll probably be okay because I'm a good person. And then, boom, start nailing that. You want to take the good person test? Have you ever told a lie? You ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? You're not getting in that way. And if you back that whole conversation up, I'll have that with any religion. And Yuli has been with me many times out there, from Muslims to Hindus to atheists. Uh, nine times out of ten, within five to ten minutes, we're right at the gospel, and that nonsense is done. It's, it's over because there's not much more they have to say in this method. That's why I said I use this method. I believe it's the best. I believe it helps us in this culture to be gospel-centered like the apostles, like Paul at the, the hill there in Acts, Mars Hill. And uh, I'm not saying I haven't met some people who just like to argue, but it, it, it happens pretty fast. You'll, you'll start proof, defense, attack. It will, it will happen. Any follow-up questions, Daryl? Yeah, that, I mean, that all sounds, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You answered the question. Um, 
flawlessly. Uh, is there, and I'm sure that there is, is this question is kind of, as I'm, I'm attempting to ask it, it kind of sounds foolish, but um, looking at it from that, you know, what you were saying, you kind of back them up in a sense that, you know, they say, hey, well, it's okay, it's wrong. In the example that you used, it's wrong to uh, to rape a child. So is is that the is is that uh, the same that process? Would that be the same logic that we would use practically? And I use practically pretty strongly. Practically, in in, in every conversation that we'd have in presuppositional conversation even not even apology but just presuppositionally but we have that same logical process to say hey uh you as an unbeliever or a non-theist you began at a at a thought that you that you thought was reason or logic and it wasn't so i have to now backtrack you into a position where you now are forced to see really forced to see what logic really is which is reason and and validity absolutely that's exactly what it is guys let me go to a video i didn't get a chance to share it last week let me get to it this week and remember i always stay 15 minutes after with you guys as well so i always have special time for you but thank you daryl because daryl set us up perfectly perfectly for this Jason Lyle video, one of the contributors at the uh, Answers in Genesis creation um, ministry there. And this is really going to bless you guys. So let's watch it. It's about 13 minutes. I'll probably cut it off about halfway in because the point gets said pretty clearly. And then I'll take any other questions on this. I'm over here standing over on my uh, biblical presuppositions. My secular friend is standing on his secular presuppositions. How are we going to get anywhere in this debate? Let me give you the wrong answer before I give you the right answer. Because good teachers always do that, right? They give you the wrong answer first. Well, the wrong answer is this. And a lot of times evolutionists will say, well, let's meet here on neutral ground. He says, maybe there are some presuppositions we can agree upon, and maybe those, you know, we can, we can abandon the other ones. And one of the ones you have to abandon is that the Bible's the Word of God, he says, because I certainly don't believe that. So leave the Bible out of the discussion. We both agree science is useful, so let's just talk in terms of science on neutral ground. Now, what's the problem with neutral ground? There is no neutral ground, right? Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Romans 8, 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Does that sound neutral to you? Hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no neutral. You're either God's friend or his enemy. You're for him, you're against him. You're gathering, you're scattering. There's no neutral ground when it comes to a worldview. We all have a positive worldview. And so we're going to call the attempt to be neutral, the pretended neutrality fallacy. And that's what it is. It's a fallacy. Since the Bible indicates that there is no neutral, the claim of neutrality is itself unbiblical. Does that make sense? If you, see, the Bible says there's no neutral. So if you say, oh, yes, there is neutral, and I'm neutral, you've just said the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. You're taking a position that the Bible's wrong. So neutrality is a non-neutral position, and so is immediately self-refuting. 
And so if, if this person says, well, yeah, let's meet here on neutral ground, leave the Bible out of the discussion because we don't agree on that. We'll just, we'll just take things that we agree on. And if you say, yeah, okay, we can leave the Bible out of the discussion, no problem. Well, neutral ground is really secular ground because the Bible says there's no such thing. And if you agree to his terms for the debate, really, you've lost. Because isn't the debate about biblical authority? We're trying to show this person the Bible is absolutely right in everything it says. And he says, okay, but let's start the debate by meeting on neutral ground, which the Bible says there isn't. And you say, okay, you've started the debate by assuming that the Bible's wrong. How are you going to get to the position that the Bible's true? Right? You, you can't, you can't uh, defend biblical authority by abandoning biblical authority. That doesn't make sense. You've started the debate by conceding defeat. That is not a good way to start a debate. Two things to remember when people ask you to be neutral. Because the secularists, they like to think that they're neutral. And they're going to want you to be neutral too. Two things to remember when people ask you to be neutral. One, they're not. Two, you shouldn't be. No one is neutral when it comes to a worldview issue. And you shouldn't attempt to be neutral when it comes to a worldview issue. You can't be anyway. No one can approach evidence without presuppositions. And if they think they are, that's a presupposition. We're to, we're to stand on the word, hold fast the word, both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. We stand on the word while defending it. Well, how then do we get anywhere? Because I'm standing on my biblical presuppositions. I'm not leaving those. I'm not going to try to meet on neutral ground. There's no such thing. My secular colleague is standing on his presuppositions. How do we get anywhere? How are we going to resolve the debate? Is it possible? Yes, it is. And this is really what the ultimate proof of creation is all about. The biblical presuppositions, it turns out, and only biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. They make it possible for us to know things. They make science possible. And the Bible tells us as much. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to begin to know something, you've got to start with God. Biblical presuppositions. And there's a flip side to this. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You reject the biblical God, you reject his presuppositions, you're reduced to absurdity, foolishness, the Bible calls it. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ. All knowledge is in God. So if you want to know anything, it's got to be through God, through biblical presuppositions. Now, there is an immediate objection to this. Because a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute, Dr. Lyle. Non-Christians, they do know some things. They do have knowledge. That's true. But you see, non-Christians do know in their heart of hearts the biblical God. And they do rely upon biblical presuppositions when it suits them. They don't do it consistently but they do rely on biblical presuppositions. Therefore, they are able to know things. Putting it another way, only the Bible makes knowledge possible. So the fact that un unbelievers do know things, all that does is prove that the Bible's true. All it does is prove that they're wrong. Only the Bible provides what we call the preconditions for the intelligibility of man's experience and reasoning. And that's your technical jargon for the day. Uh, man's experience and reasoning. In order for our reasoning, our, th our thoughts to make sense, in order for our experiences in the universe to be intelligible, to make sense, certain things would have to already be true. And those are what we call those preconditions, the preconditions of intelligibility. And what are some of those things? Well, laws of logic. In order for us to think properly, there would have to already be in existence laws of logic. In order for us to do science, there would already have to be certain things in place. Uh, you already believe that your senses are reliable when you do science. That's a precondition of intelligibility. And so my argument for biblical creation, and for that matter, for any, any portion of the Bible, for us to have those things. Your senses are reliable when you do science. That's a precondition of intelligibility. And so my argument for biblical I'm going to fast forward it just a little bit here. Let's go here to these last few minutes, and I think it will tie it together of how he's going to do both. Offer 
the presuppositional approach as he's talked about and now bring the defense and the proof and these different things. Not all truth claims are answered empirically. You couldn't answer the question of life after death empirically. I take that on the authority of scripture that there's life after death. But the empiricist says, oh no, if you can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, whatever, it's not real, it's not truth. And so you must eventually ask the empiricist, how do you know the statement itself is true? How do you know that all truth claims are proved by empirical observation? Did you prove that by empirical observation? No, you can't observe truth claims, right? That doesn't even make sense. You can't see a truth claim, it's abstract. And so the, the notion that all truth, truth claims are proved by empirical observation cannot be proved by empirical observation, therefore ought to be rejected on its own standard. See, empiricism refutes itself, just like relativism. Secular worldviews blow themselves up. All you have to do is light the match and let it go. It will circle back around and destroy itself. It's always the case. By the way, the biblical worldview is the only worldview that won't do that. The biblical worldview is the only one that when you apply it to itself, it's self-consistent. It doesn't blow itself up. All secular worldviews do. So at first it may seem like we, we're on our own little island over there on biblical presuppositions and my secular friend is on, over on his own little island over there, secular presuppositions. At first it may seem like we have no common ground. There's no neutral ground. We've already established that. But you see, the point is, secular presuppositions are sinking sand. They will not support a cogent worldview. Only the Bible can do that. Only the Bible is the, the rock upon which we all must stand. And so when that sand dissolves away, the unbeliever is left standing on nothing. Now, they may have pockets of rationality within them. Nobody is, you know, just, well, I mean, there might be some people that are just totally insane. But for the most part, people have degrees of rationality. But ultimately, they can't support their, their own notions, you see. And so what is this unbeliever going to do? He can't stand on his own worldview, so he's going to do this. Unbelievers will stand on Christian presuppositions when it suits them, because they have to. They couldn't get anywhere without these Christian presuppositions like laws of logic. Unbelievers do accept and you Okay, and let me just stop it right there. And so I'll talk here with the, the picture up there, is that that's what we're going to do. We're going to establish this first fact right here that there, well, we could maybe say we're going to do two things. We're going to destroy their foundation, and then we're going to let them borrow our foundation only after they've admitted they have no foundation, you know. And if they don't in the conversation, uh, we'll, we'll see if it's fruitful to move on. If it's been, you know, because sometimes, you're like, first of all, nobody likes to admit they're wrong. Like, I'm, I'm talking, I've been a pastor for, you know, or doing ministry for over 20 years, not even Christians like to admit they're wrong. So first of all, if you're talking about having an argument with somebody, most of the time they're not going to be like, I'm, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm, I'm going to admit it all right now. But the Holy Spirit should guide us and teach us to know when this point has been established. When have we really nailed this point, brought it home, they have really understood it to the point now we can move on to other things, as the book says, to the things that now they can all consider with us, the gospel, uh, us tearing down their religion or their worldview, you know, us showing them that it doesn't work, and then leading them to Jesus. Because just saying over and over and over again, you don't know nothing, isn't, going, isn't the gospel, okay? So remember, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not an apologetic approach. I think that's really good uh, to share right here. And then uh, I'll take some questions, but Romans uh, 1.18 says, the um, not Romans uh, 1.18, uh, 
Uh, what, where's the, the gospel, man? My mind's going blank today. Romans 1, 16. Thank you. Holy Ghost. 17. Yeah, 1, 16 through 17. Thank you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so um, I hope that kind of explains what you guys have been asking. How do we do this method? And as we go through the book, the book now is not really going to keep telling you to keep rocking these things. It's really now just going to tell you how to preach the gospel and how to answer some of their objections. That's, that's really all the book is going to do at this point. And to remind you of the foundation that we stand on. So, for example, uh, you know, chapter one is now the, uh, the basics. Next week, we'll talk about the chapter two, the message of the apologist, which is basically how we know what we know through the Bible, like just how to keep preaching to them. Uh, ethics, philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology. The, those are the things we're going to say. And then after that, we're going to talk about how to use proof. Like we actually get into proof. Chapter three uh, is actually called the apology. Uh, chapter three is named apologetics as proof. We're going to show you how to use faith, scripture, and evidence. Okay. And then we're going to give you our best argument, the transcendental argument, which is uh, one of the many we can use. But as a presuppositionalist, it's kind of like the one I've already given you. Like, if you can reason there is a God, you reason, therefore, there is a God, you know. So, um, uh, you know, this idea of how we do everything we do already presupposes there's a God. That's called the transcendental argument. And you'll learn about that. But then we'll also give the other arguments, uh, the other theistic arguments, the ones like Thomas Aquinas has learned. And so, uh, you don't have to feel like, uh, you know, we'll get into the moral argument and, and these different things, the cosmological argument, the uh, teleolog teleological argument. And so once again, you don't have to believe or rather just because you're a presuppositionist. Let me back up one, one more thing here. A, you don't have to be a presuppositionist to be an apologist. OK, God can use you without you even knowing the terms and everything. God you, has used me for 20 plus years. And this is the first real a book I've had on it. Well, I've had other books, I should say, but you know, this is like my first class on it. This is something I've developed more of l learning, etc. You can be a great apologist without this is if you just follow the Holy Spirit, because nine times out, the, out of 10, if you don't try to prove something in the flesh, the Holy Spirit's going to keep you in these places naturally, you know, just na it, it, well, at least it, it was for me. Okay, number one. Number two, when you establish these things, it's going to help you to bring the proof, to bring the evidence, to bring the gospel, all of those things. And, and ultimately, it rests on the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, any questions for the last 10 minutes? Otherwise, I do have a part of a video I'd like to watch. But uh, someone other than Daryl, Daryl, you and I can talk after class. I just want to open it up to anybody else. Have any questions, please? Yes, I oh. Okay, let's go, Rachel, uh, then Joe B. Go ahead, Rachel. Okay, really quickly, um, I'm looking on page 18, the Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Um, he was saying here that there's a danger in us as apologetics to put our own, he says here, our theology therefore always faces the danger of elevating the theologian's own conceptions um, of human need to a position equal to or greater than the authority of the scripture. Okay. When would that ever be an instance where 
our need. Like, I'm trying to understand what he's trying to say there, like, that we can have our own ideas in our arguments that would then be above scripture in our arguments. I just didn't understand what he was trying to say there. Um, you'd have to bring me to that exact uh, sentence. Could you actually read the sentence for sure. me? It says, Theolo- um, uh, what page? Can you tell me the page? Page 18. Okay. And it's going to be the sola scriptura section. Yeah, I'm there. The second paragraph more towards the end. Um, uh, theology, therefore, always faces the danger of elevating the theologian's own conception of okay, Hold on just for a moment. Give me just one second because I'm coming right to this section here. Theology. Okay, there we go. I got it. Now just please keep mm-hmm. reading. Um, the danger of elevating the theologian's own conception of human need to a position of equal authority to or even greater authority than the scriptures. Like, when would that even be it? And so I'm trying to understand, like... I think if the theologian is wrong, therefore to defend the Bible according to its own standards, even when we use extra biblical data in the process, it's not to add anything to scripture as our supreme standard. It is simply to expose, as we see above, the rationality of scripture itself. It is sometimes hard to rid ourselves of the notion that when we argue the truth of Scripture based on facts outside of Scripture, we are elevating those facts, ultimately our own fact-gathering, to a greater authority other than Scripture. Okay, so, um, yeah, I can see his point now, and then the point I was saying was still true. So we, we don't take any theologian as Scripture. Scripture is always above theologians. And then what he is actually saying here is that if you look at theology as, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, what uh, uh, Lee Strobel did, and if, you know, Faith at, um, what is the name of his book? Um, Faith on Trial. Man, my mind's moving a little slow today. What was the Lee Strobel's book, guys? Somebody help me, please. Case for Christ is about Case for Christ. There you go. And so he's interviewing all of these these theologians. Well, at that point, it can almost seem like the facts that the theologians are saying, like here is the shroud of Turin, which was something he examined. Uh, here is the tomb of Jesus, you know, whatever. Those things are not as important as the Bible itself. And so your spirit, and the Bible says this in First John. You need no one to teach you. You have an anointing. The Holy Spirit will teach you. That's what I think he's trying to get across here. Uh, That's how I would explain it. Ultimately, we would have to ask him what he would mean. But that's what I think he's saying, because even if you go to the sentence before your sentence, it says, obviously, physics, sociology, geology, psychology, medicine, and so forth must respond to data beyond the scriptures. Theology must do the same because it is not merely reading of scripture, but an application of scripture to human need. And so he's talking about how theologians, uh, as you've heard me talk, like go into deeper things and we're always trying to speculate. And so what he's trying to say is that that is not what we're arguing for is speculation. We're arguing for the basis of clear, revealed scripture that doesn't need an expert to come and explain everything to you. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you so much. That and, does. It, and this to put it in another way, think of the early church. There was really no theologians, and yet the gospel is going forward. There is power. Uh, the theologians don't really start to show up in the way we would think of them until maybe about another 50 to 100 years later. 
uh, maybe with irate. I don't even know if Ignatius would be considered. I don't think Justin Martyr and these guys were necessarily uh, theologians. Maybe a little bit later with Irenaeus and Tertullian and so forth, you start to see it. So they're they're up into this point, especially as we see in Scripture. They're simply preaching the gospel and giving forth the testimony of the of the revelation of it. Amen. 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 If you have a follow up, I'll be around as well for you. Go ahead, Joe B. Uh, in terms of like when we're speaking about the neutral uh, neutrality and yeah. how it's a myth, uh, and there's no neutral zone. Uh, I was thinking, what about a seeker, a person who's uh, not really uh, he's open to uh, the gospel, but he does have uh, lots of questions, right? Um, and but let's say this, he doesn't really agree with maybe. Like, I would like to say he doesn't agree with many of the church's teachings other than uh, the fundamental truths, right? So, like, let's say, you know, he, he's like, man, I don't think smoking weed is a sin. And then you're like, okay. And he's bringing up all these things that really don't matter. Uh, would he still would he still be considered, right, like an unbeliever? And I guess I'm not really speaking of an unbeliever. I guess I'm speaking of those people that, you know, they don't want to really uh, – conform to like you know christian or holiness or anything they're just kind of like weirdos and they don't like really talking about church would you use like a presuppositional argument against them like i guess i meant like the seeker i don't know if i'm really making myself clear like a seeker who is open to the word <laughs> I, I he's open to like the gospel but he just doesn't agree with certain things about the bible like would you still use the presuppositional argument against them or would it be more like evidentialism Your, your mic. Sorry. Either I am not explaining this correctly, or this is just something that takes time for, for people to grasp. So please be patient with me as I'm patient with you. <laughs> the presuppositional approach is not necessarily just doing what we would call the argument from reason, the argument from absurdity. First and foremost, Presuppositional apologetics is saying, I presuppose God in the Bible. So what do I do with this guy? I preach to him the God of the Bible. I, 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 I know that sounds so simple, so I'm trying to understand. Am I not understanding your question? Like, I, I meet a guy, he says, I kind of believe in this. I kind of don't believe in that. So I'm just like, well, you need to believe in this. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says this is true. And if he brings up arguments against that, remember, I'm going to defend it now. And then whatever he says against it, I'm going to attack and bring down because I believe this is true. And then I'm going to give proof for it. And so I, when you're saying evidences, I don't know if you're confusing maybe evidence with like you're going to take him down to some rock quarry where they've done uh, excavation of Jericho and you're going to now prove to him the walls have fallen down. I'm like, saying like – the evidence that when we're talking about the difference between, and I appreciate your patience. That's like why I said, please be patient with me as I'm being patient with you. So if I'm saying some things you're already saying, I'll give you a chance to clarify. When we're talking about, and I, and I, and I probably should have defined these other apologetics approach beforehand, because maybe that is the confusion to next week. You will know them. Okay. When we're saying evidentialism, we're talking like a Gary, a Dr. Gary Habermas, one of our best scholars on the resurrection goes around debating all over the world, did Jesus rise from the dead, okay? 
in his debate, did Jesus rise from the dead? He is not asking the people within the debate, do you even have an explanation to why you can be here and do the debate? That's what we're really saying as, as Christian presuppositionalists, is we're saying he's debating with a blind sinner who thinks he has a reason for rationality. What I'm saying is, in, if he even has that debate, which is okay, like I'm not, like I said, I'm not even a sassy precept. I'm okay if he does the debate. Just in the debate, I want to start off saying something like what Dr. Uh, David Wood does in his debate. I'm going to say, just to let you all know here, we couldn't even have this debate if God didn't exist and Jesus rise from the dead. Just want to let you know, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes on and rocks that evidence for the resurrection. Um, you're not going to, evidentialists don't have evidence for every moral teaching of the Bible or whatever. You know, evidentialists are trying to take big evidences of the Bible and present them to sinners. I think that's where it's at. And, and, and the classical approach is taking our best proofs, as we will learn here, and just going with that. Like, like someone says, I don't believe in God. And we'll be like, well, uh, wh what do you think did the Big Bang? You know, and you've heard me say something like that. What, what the presuppositionalist is saying is before you even say what did the Big Bang, ask them why can you even ask the question, you know. So please clarify yourself, and I'll let this be the last question, and then we can have after-class discussion. Yeah, I think uh, I'll just kind of try to uh, put it in a better way. Okay. I hope I didn't discourage you. No, you didn't discourage me. I just want to ask, ask it better, you know, Mark. Make it okay. more, I need time to think of it. Okay, and I see you wrote it down. Maybe using arguments that don't really agree with Scripture. Oh, no, that was uh, for Rachel's. Okay, because uh, I was saying I didn't understand that. Okay, well, Joe B., why don't you close us out in prayer, and then uh, we will have an after-class discussion, Armano. For sure. Lord God, I just thank you for this time, Lord, of uh, just knowledge and wisdom. Lord, I thank you, God, for your word, Lord, which is true. No matter uh, what other people say, God, I pray, Lord, as Christians and uh, and as your children, Lord, we would stand on the word, God, and we would have faith in it, Lord, and we would not uh, give way to uh, false teachings, Lord, or uh, just hollow philosophy, God. But instead, Lord, we would attack every argument against you and your word, Lord, and destroy it in Jesus' name. I thank you, God. I pray that we would be led by the Spirit in every uh, in every conversation, Lord, in every interaction, Lord, with uh, unbelievers or people that doubt you, Jesus, and uh, are uh, anti God, Lord. I praise you. I pray that you have your way, Lord, in uh, in tonight in the after class discussion, Lord, and uh, in the rest of our week in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. We'll see you guys next week.